This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The talk is titled Anxiety and Peace in Augustine's Confessions. One of Augustine's most famous titles is Dr. Grazie, the teacher of grace, but he can also be called Dr. Pacis, the teacher of peace. Donald Barth writes, peace is one of the central concepts in Augustine's thought. The word pax in its various forms appears more than 2,500 times in Augustine's writings. The reasons for this emphasis are evident. The driving force of all, ac of all human action is the desire for happiness, and no one can be happy without peace. In book 19 of City of God, Augustine says, Peace is such a great good that, even in earthly and mortal affairs, nothing tends more gratefully to be heard, nothing is desired more intensely, and in short, nothing better can possibly be found. And if I choose to linger on the subject a little longer, I shall not, I think, be imposing any burden on my readers, both because peace is the end of the city we are discussing, that is, the city of God, and because of the very sweetness of peace itself, which is dear to all. In order for us to appreciate the gift of peace, we can focus on something that is perhaps more discussed in terms of psychological and social discussions than in theology today, anxiety. We can arguably do no better than focus on Augustine's Confessions. In the Prolegomena to his commentary on the Confessions, James J. O'Donnell writes of Augustine's powerful and evident anxieties, evident on every page. O'Donnell speaks of the Bishop of Hippo's urgent concern with the right use of language, for to use language wrongly is to find oneself praising a god, with a little g, who is not God, with a capital G. For O'Donnell, Augustine's anxiety is intensified because of a loss of privacy. He cannot hide from God. Anxiety so pervades the confessions, O'Donnell claims, that even the implicit narrative structure is undermined. One might expect that the text will move from restlessness to rest, from anxiety to, tranqu to tranquility. In some ways that's true, O'Donnell continues, but in other ways we find Augustine still anxious in books 10 through 13 after he tells, of, tells us of his baptism and his peace in book 9. Shouldn't the bishop by now be enjoying more repose in the wake of all his troubles? Instead, he deems human beings opaque to themselves and must always submit to God in order to know the truth of who they are. Augustine's God, on the other hand, as O'Donnell reminds us, is utterly without anxiety. From that focus on Augustine's anxiety, O'Donnell turns to give one of the greatest lines of Augustinian scholarship in the past 50 years. All of us who read Augustine fail him in many ways. <laughs> O'Donnell summarizes no less than seven ways of failing Augustine. In this list, we can notice perhaps O'Donnell's own anxiety in offering his commentary on one of the world's literary masterpieces, a work that he finds riddled with anxiety. Although O'Donnell does not define what he means by anxiety, we can ponder what, how we use the term and reflect upon the prevalence of anxiety today. So this is where, in terms of just thinking about the usefulness of this talk during this retreat, uh, that we live in an anxious world. In all sorts of ways, people experience anxiety. And for us to turn to St. Augustine as someone who can help us move to peace, okay? So this is, uh, I really want this to have practical benefit for people's lives. Rollo Mays, The Meaning of Anxiety, is considered a classic of the topic. 
In the revised edition, he writes, It is agreed by students of anxiety, Sigmund Freud, Kurt Goldstein, Karen Horney, to mention only three, that anxiety is a diffuse apprehension, and that the central difference between fear and anxiety is that fear is a reaction to a specific danger, while anxiety is unspecific, vague, objectless. May continues, the special characteristics of anxiety are the feelings of uncertainty and helplessness in the face of the danger. Anxiety draws attention to the core of our being, our very awareness of existence in an inner conflict. May gives this definition, anxiety is the apprehension cued off by a threat to some value that the individual holds essential to his existence as a personality. In anxiety, our existence could be threatened by many perceived evils, death, the loss of freedom, meaninglessness, or the separation from someone or something that defines us. Anxiety sounds awful, but it varies considerably and always affirms to protect our existence when we perceive ourselves to be vulnerable or under attack. When anxiety is healthy, and by the way, there can be a healthy anxiety, when anxiety is healthy, it enables us to be alert for a possible danger, just as healthy people should have fears about certain objective dangers. Normal anxiety can and should be used for the betterment of life. In his review of cases of those with anxiety, Rollo May finds that people who score highly on intelligence and creativity tests are more apt to be anxious. It is true that if we are not aware, not engaged with the complexities of the world, we will not be anxious. It's also true that if we have certainty and feel helped in the face of problems, we will not be anxious and we will have peace, no matter how terrible things are. Now, more recently than the revised version of May's classic work, the National Institute of Mental Health distinguishes between occasional anxiety and anxiety disorders. Okay, so it goes into all sorts of kinds of anxiety. Uh, anxiety disorders appear in several forms, including generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, and sundry phobias. So let's just concentrate on the first. General, generalized anxiety disorder is manifest over most days for at least a six-month period. Its symptoms, according to the National Institute of Mental Health, include feeling restless, wound up or on edge, being easily fatigued, having difficulty concentrating, mind going blank, being irritable, having muscle tension, difficulty controlling feelings of worry, having sleep problems such as difficulty falling or staying asleep, restlessness or unsatisfying sleep. Now, because of its significance and prevalence, we can look at anxiety in many ways that could be combined, psychological, physical, medical, social, spiritual. Each of these ways could be further subdivided and then could be considered by approaches that differ markedly from each other. No single approach of ours could possibly make all our anxieties understood or, more importantly, disappear. For example, a saint who accepts abundant spiritual blessing could have a chemical imbalance that makes him or her prone to a certain kind of anxiety. Nevertheless, we can believe that the God who heard Augustine's confessions wants us to receive his certainty and his help about what is most important in life. Only with God's help can we experience peace, which Augustine famously defines in City of God, Book 19, as the tranquility of order. This Thomistic Institute talk on anxiety and peace in Augustine's confessions focuses on Confessions, Book 6, through the lenses of, of Augustine's anxiety and ours, so that we may see how Augustine came to accept peace and how we might too. This dual approach may give us insight into this literary masterpiece and our anxiety-ridden culture. 
I'll first review Augustine's anxiety narrated in Book 6. After that, I'll position those findings of Augustine's anxiety as a mirror to help us see something of our own anxious state. In doing so, we should ask ourselves questions to think through how our culture, our lives, can stand to benefit from this reflection. By seeing Book 6 as a mirror of anxieties for a bishop's audience, we can find something of ourselves in this work and be led to the peace that only knowing God's merciful presence can give. So, anxiety in Book 6. Book 6 begins with a series of questions indicating that Augustine has become wayward from God even though God created him to be wiser than the birds in the sky. He confesses to God, Yet I was walking a dark and slippery path, searching for you outside myself. I had sunk to the depth of the sea. I lost all faith and despaired of ever finding the truth, and I was not finding the God of my heart. We immediately find anxious questioning, meandering, utter faithlessness, and complete despair. Augustine, it seems, wants us to read the rest of the book from that perspective. He first offers two models of peace for his life, Monica and Ambrose. Next, Augustine concentrates on the anxieties regarding extremes found in the world, himself at the imperial court and the drunken beggar on the streets. Then still in the world, but of greater nobility, are his friendships with Olypius and Nebridius and the anxieties that beset them. These friendships bear upon how Augustine considers things even more intimate. Augustine turns inward to his life, reviewing his past and his sexual loves regarding the mother of his son, a prospective girl for marriage, and a mistress, all left unnamed, unlike Olypius and Nebridius. Finally, he turns in his heart up to God in the context of discussions with friends to, dis to consider the shortness of his life and God's judgment. We begin with the two models of peace for Augustine, his mother, St. Monica, and his spiritual father, St. Ambrose. Monica and Ambrose, models of peace for an anxious heart. A common fear in classical and late antique literature appears in descriptions of a sea voyage, and Augustine uses that topos to emphasize his mother's peace in contrast to his own sorry state. He turns immediately from how he had sunk into the depth of the sea of iniquity to his mother's journey from North Africa across the sea to rescue him in Italy. Whereas it would be expected that Monica would show anxiety on the sea, she is instead shown to be steadfast in her fidelity and full of trust in God. When her ship encounters dangers... She encouraged the sailors because she knew from a dream of God's assurance. Monica reached Augustine and found him in despair of ever discovering the truth. She, in contrast, was confident in the Lord. Monica had become a model of peace. Now, back in book three, Augustine wrote that Monica had an inspired dream, which gave her comfort in her present anxiety. In the dream, she saw him standing with her on the wooden rule of faith, an unnamed North African bishop then confirmed to her that a son of tears would not be lost. In book six, Monica's crying, rather than showing anxiety, bespeaks faith in Christ, who would answer the widow's grief by raising her son from the dead and returning him, speaking back to his mother, just like Luke chapter seven. She knew that God would make Augustine a faithful Catholic before she departed from this life. Monica's trust in God led her in Italy to hang on the words of another bishop, this time Ambrose of Milan. This illustrates that she found her faith in the Catholic Church and gladly submitted to the church's bishop. In fact, when she was corrected for continuing a North African practice of bringing bread and wine to the martyrs' tomb, tombs, she immediately abandoned her custom in favor of Ambrose's judgment. Later in Book 9, we will learn that many years earlier, Monica herself had become addicted to wine. It is therefore significant that here Augustine upholds her as 
not enslaved to any habit of wine-bibbing. An anxious heart at times turns to alcohol for soothing, but Monica turned to God through the preacher Ambrose. In narrating this time in Milan, Augustine thinks it's unlikely that Monica would have acted so virtuously if the bishop had been anyone other than Ambrose, whom she so revered. She trusted him primarily because of her hope in Augustine's salvation and thought his preaching flowed with the waters of eternal life. When Ambrose praised her to Augustine, Augustine felt that the bishop did not really know what kind of a son she had. He writes, I was full of doubts about all these things and scarcely believed it possible to find the way of life. Augustine was not even yet praying to God, and he was restlessly eager for argument. Ambrose, who served as a model for Monica's perseverance, appears ready to assist for Augustine's conversion, even when Augustine does not want to reach up to God. Augustine admits that seeing his bishop at the time, he could not have guessed what was going, in, going on inside of Ambrose's heart the hope he had, the struggles against temptations to high office, the encouragement he received, and the delights of the word of God he savored. These presumably were exactly what was going on within the heart of Augustine the bishop as author of the Confessions. Ambrose seemed always busy in service to others. Although he would occasionally refresh himself, such as in his silent reading, Augustine uh, uh, never found the bishop available to answer his private questions, which were arising from his inner turmoil as it came to a feverish pitch. In lieu of private conversation, Ambrose's public preaching assisted Augustine to think through his heart's concerns. It prompted him to wonder what it meant to be made to the image of God. By listening to Ambrose's sermons, Augustine came to be free of the carnal imagination that he had entertained as a Manichaean of God's materiality. God's image in us is not found in our bodily form. Augustine was gradually learning from the church's preaching this new way of thinking and living, but only gradually. The anxiety which gnawed at my inner self to determine what I could hold on to as certain, Augustine comments, was the more intense in proportion to my shame at remembering how long I had been deluded and beguiled by assurances that falsehoods were certain and had in my headstrong childish error babbled about such various du very dubious things as though they were proven. In other words, Augustine was understanding how for many years he had been certain about things erroneous. Augustine gives us an image of peace that was hard won, not a false ironicism. He came to reject the hypocrisy of the academics who rigidly claimed that no certainty exists. Instead, he was being moved by Ambrose's preaching toward the surety of peace narrated in Scripture. He found himself wanting to believe, and he began to prefer the Catholic faith, but he still wavered. Augustine closes this section of the models of his mother and spiritual father with the admission of his anxiety and the Lord's faithfulness to him. All the while, Lord, as I pondered these things, you stood by me. I sighed, and you heard me. I was tossed to and fro, and you steered me aright. I wandered down the wide road of the world, but you did not desert me. The Anxieties of the Imperial Court and the Drunk Beggar, the World's Extremes After depicting Monica and Ambrose as models of peace, Augustine turns to two extremes found in the world, himself at the Imperial Court and a drunken beggar on the streets. Augustine came to Milan because of his promotion to be the Emperor's Orator, he realized his misery before giving a speech of praise, full of lies, for the emperor, the most powerful man in the world. 
Augustine looks back on himself and laments, My heart was panting with anxiety and seething with feverish, corruptive thoughts. His pride was a weight too heavy to bear. He wanted happiness with its peace, but could not find it in his sinful profession of lies. Instead, he noticed a drunk beggar and compared that man's life on the streets with his own. The beggar did not enjoy true happiness, but at least, as drunk, he had a temporal happiness that eluded Augustine, who remarks, He was carefree, I apprehensive. Augustine considers how he would have responded if someone had asked him at the time if he should be if he if he should be one to like if he should want to be like that beggar. I would have chosen to be myself, laden with anxieties and fears. Augustine laments that his own life was so much worse than the drunken beggars. The beggar would sleep off his intoxication, but Augustine in his pride was drunk with a pursuit of worldly glory every morning. The beggar had a sort of merriment. Augustine was miserable. The beggar received some coins after he wished passerbys a good day, something he truly meant. But Augustine received his money by lying in the imperial court. In this depiction, the beggar seems to have no anxiety and is a more honest man than Augustine, who was not turning to God in humility for help. Augustine gives a concluding reflection to the scene by recounting how he would converse with his friends about this parallel. It is now to these conversations that we turn and know how anxieties are there described. From these anxieties, we can also glimpse something of the peace that awaits Augustine and his readers. Olypius and Nebridius, Friendship and Anxieties. Augustine begins this section by repeating how he discussed what he narrated with his friends, this time naming Olypius and Nebridius. One way of reading the long digression of recounting Olypius' life is to consider how Book 6 features Olypius for the reader's anxious heart. Olypius is not a model parental figure, as Monica and Ambrose are, but is a longtime student of Augustine's, one who becomes a close friend. Like Augustine, he was trapped in the anxieties of the world, but he was always guided by our provident God. Augustine and Olypius thus share a common story. In the Confessions, Augustine describes himself so often with friends and in terms of his friends. We will later encounter Olypius in Augustine's con conversion in the garden. That moment is, under, is understood to be their conversion, leading to their baptism. Augustine's example for his readers, always present to him in his prayer to God that constitutes the Confessions, comes after and through his example for his friends in the narrative. Olypius and Augustine hailed from the same town, Tagast, Numidia, where Augustine first taught Olypius. After Augustine moved back to Carthage, he taught Olypius there as well. Olypius had a fine nobility of character, but Augustine became disturbed by Olypius's addiction to the immoral Carthag Carthaginian circus games. Augustine writes, I was extremely anxious because he seemed to me bent on wasting his excellent promise. Augustine recounts how one day he was speaking to his students about the immorality of those shows, not thinking of Olypius at all. Olypius was eagerly listening. The result was that God used the unwitting Augustine's heart and tongue to counterize Olypius's promising mind. Olypius was healed of that affliction, but he became caught in the snare of Manichaeanism that was entrapping Augustine. Looking back at the Manichaean way of life, Augustine describes it as offering only the appearance of virtue, for it was all a sham. After this time, Olypius left for Rome to pursue worldly gain and law, and arrived there before Augustine. One day, a group of friends convinced Olypius to go to the stadium for gladiatorial entertainments. Olypius protests that he would not even look at the show. Rather than trusting in God, Olypius trusted in his own power not to be swayed. 
the roar of the crowd made him open his eyes to see the bloodshed, and he was caught. He watched, he shouted, he grew hot with excitement. He carried away with him a madness that lured him back again, not only in the company of those by whom he had initially been dragged along, but even before them, dragging others. Augustine comments that God, much later, rescued Olypius from this plight. As Augustine narrates, Olypius would indeed learn his lesson from this addiction and from an episode about his earlier study days in Carthage when he was accused of theft. There as a youth, Olypius had heard a commotion, seen another youth run away, and picked up the dropped axe that had been used during the course of the crime. Suddenly, men came and caught Olypius red-handed, or so it seemed. God protected Olypius and, through a providential encounter with an architect responsible for the public buildings, relieved him of the impending corporal punishment or imprisonment. Augustine comments, The man who would one day be the dispenser of your word and the judge of many a case in your church, because Olypius was going to be a bishop, departed more experienced and better informed. In these vignettes from Olypius's life, Augustine shows us how God's hand is at work, even when it cannot be seen at the time. This is one of the most important lessons for the anxious heart. God provides. His help is certain. Only God gives the peace that will last. God provided through Augustine's words, even though the speaker was unaware of it, and he provided through the architect, in a sense, God was building the house of Olypius, for without God, all labors are in vain. In the last descriptions of the section featuring Olypius, we find him in Milan, where he came with Augustine. Olypius rose to a high position as assessor to the chancellor of the Italian treasury. Although not yet a Catholic model of peace, Olypius becomes more markedly an example of natural virtues. Olypius laughs at bribes and spurns threats. Nothing, it seems, can deter him. Well, almost. He eventually overcame a temptation to use his position's privilege to acquire copied books at a low price. Whereas Augustine begins recounting his friend's life by describing himself as extremely anxious for Olypius, he concludes it by showing his fine character as a friend wanting to discuss the most important things about how to live. Along those lines we see Nebridius, whom Augustine called his sweet friend. Nebridius shares in the aspirations of Augustine and Olypius. As such, Augustine relates that he was tossed to and fro along with us. Nebridius had left his parents' wealthy estate near Carthage to live with Augustine. His mother, Augustine reports, did not try to follow him. Augustine depicts his group of friends anxiously asking amidst their dissatisfaction and unease with their lives, how long are we to go on like this? Augustine concludes this section by commenting, we are perpetually asking this question, but even as we asked it, we made no attempt to change our ways because we had no light to see what we should grasp instead if we were to let go of them. Their lives were certainly not all bad, but their lives were collectively anxious. They were not yet at peace. The anxieties of life, marriage, and loss, intimate struggles of the heart. Augustine begins the next section by reviewing his life. For my own part, I was reflecting with anxiety and some perplexity how much time had elapsed since my 19th year, when I had first been fired with passion for the pursuit of wisdom, resolving that once I had found it, I would leave behind all empty hopes and vain desires and the follies that deluded me. What follows is a fascinating collision of memories, as Augustine lets his readers hear snippets of conversations and thoughts from the years since he had read Cicero's Hortentius at the age of 18. He describes this dialogue with himself as wind blowing from this way and that, hurling my heart hither and thither. From here, 
we now enter into Augustine's accounts of the woman he loved, an underage girl, and a convenient mistress for his uncontrolled sexual appetite. Whereas Olypius had an awkwardly bad sexual encounter earlier and suffered from some temptations to fascination about sexual pleasure, but not greatly from sexual temptation itself, Augustine could not imagine his life without sex. Augustine had become a teenage father to Adeodatus, and he remained faithful to Adeodatus' mother for all the years since their teenage, teenage union. Monica had plans for Augustine to have a proper marriage with a woman of class before his baptism. Arrangements were made for the 31-year-old imperial orator to have a young girl prepared to be his wife. At this time, Augustine and several friends dallied with the idea to form an intentional community, but when they realized that their wives or potential wives might not consent to this arrangement, they abandoned the idea. Augustine's own common-law wife of many years was torn from his side for the sake of his worldly career. She returned to Africa with a vow never to be with another man. Since Augustine could not wait a couple years for the betrothed girl to be available for marriage, he showed himself a slave to lust and got himself another woman. His decisions for intimacy did not result in relief for his anxious heart, but the pain became a cold despair. Anxiety for death, God at the end, and all along the way. Book 6's concluding section turns to Augustine's praise of God in the present moment and the recollection of his friend's com conversation at that time about life and its judgment. Augustine in some ways favored Epicurean philosophy, but knew that it could not be right, as Epicurus refused to believe in the life of the soul after bodily death. In the midst of his miseries, Augustine loved his friends and their conversing with him. In a telling phrase that shows for some today true love, but for the bishop Augustine, grave distortion, he writes, I loved these friends for their own sake and felt myself loved by them for mine. Grave distortion from the bishop's perspective, but the model for those without the faith. Only God is to be loved for his own sake in an everlasting embrace, and all other persons are to be enjoyed only in the Lord. Augustine teaches that in his On Christian Doctrine, Book 1, written about the same time as the Confessions, it shows how the first commandment of love, whereby we are to love God with our whole heart, whole soul, and whole mind, has within its space for another commandment of loving where we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. Yet, as a 31-year-old, Augustine did not accept that. Augustine concludes Book 6 by speaking of his ways as tortuous. He describes his lack of rest in the language of insomnia. Toss and turn as we may, now on our back, now side, now belly. Our bed is hard at every point, for you alone are our rest. Whereas Augustine's younger self in Book 6 does not yet pray, Augustine, as the bishop writer, hears how God rescues him from his wretched meanderings. Run, I will carry you, I will lead you, and I will bring you home. The certainty and the help needed to overcome anxiety are available. Augustine has only by grace to accept God to have peace. Now, from that review of Book 6, let's examine our own lives. This is the harder work. Augustine's anxiety in Book 6 as a mirror for our anxiety and search for peace. How can we relate in some way to the anxiety and search for peace of Book 6? Many people find themselves or their loved ones anxious. Various lists of what has made people anxious over the past 70 years uh, could be drawn up. Consider the threat of nuclear war during the decades of the Cold War, the increasing rates of marriage and family separation, 
the digital boom with social media promising instant knowledge and gratification but often yielding anxiety, employment volatility, and various crises said to threaten the church, civilization, and the planet. Most recently, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention reported that the coronavirus pandemic has dramatically raised anxiety in the United States. Elevated levels of adverse mental health conditions, substance use, and suicidal ideation were reported by adults in the United States in June 2020. The prevalence of symptoms of anxiety disorder was approximately three times those reported in the second quarter of 2019, so 25.5% versus 8.1%. This anxiety has been especially afflicting the young, which may mean that they will develop patterns of anxiety throughout their lives if they're not healed. One way of addressing our anxiety is to read the confessions as a mirror for our lives. As with many other writers of antiquity and late antiquity, Augustine used the image of a mirror for his readers' reflections. He considered sacred scripture to be a privileged mirror. In fact, as an old bishop, he compiled scriptural passages useful for living the Christian life and called his compilation Speculum, the mirror. In a homily on Psalm 103, Augustine preaches on self-knowledge in order to receive the love of the Lord and beauty. Your first duty is therefore to see clearly what you are. That will deter you from your going in your ugliness to receive the kisses of the beautiful bridegroom. But where shall I look to see myself, you ask? Augustine continues, He has provided his scriptures as a mirror for you, and there you are told, Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God. In that text, a mirror is held out to you. See whether you are one of the pure-hearted it mentions, and grieve if you are not yet like that. Grieve in order to become so. The mirror will reflect your face to you. You will not find the mirror flattering you, and neither must you beguile yourself. The reality that is yourself, that is what the mirror shows forth. Look at what you are, and if what you see disgusts you, seek to become otherwise. If in your ugly condition you find yourself repulsive, you are already pleasing to your beautiful bridegroom. Augustine does not think, however, that only scripture serves as a mirror. His own works can be mirrors. Augustine writes a letter on the virtuous life for Boniface, an exceedingly high-ranking layman in the imperial government of North Africa, which he concludes by calling the letter a mirror for Boniface. Whatever Boniface finds in that letter or in sacred scripture that he still lacks, he is encouraged to acquire it by action and prayer. Similarly, the rule of St. Augustine concludes by bidding its readers, examine yourselves in this little book as in a mirror. Now we take book six precisely as a mirror. And let's think now, models of peace for an anxious heart. Okay, so we think about how uh, Monica and, uh, and Ambrose were models of peace. We need parental figures who can model peace when we experience what seems to be an endlessly stormy sea. Some are blessed with a parent or two parents exemplary in the peace that only Christ can give. It is significant that the church wants those baptized to have sponsors, commonly called godparents, who profess the faith for us and with us. Religious are called to be spiritually fruitful in offering their lives for the salvation of souls. Clergy can exercise spiritual paternity, and it's common to call a priest father to signify that. In various ways, people can become parental figures by providing solid examples of peace for those who feel at sea. Now, who are our models of peace in life? Augustine actually must have spent very little time privately with the busy Ambrose. Augustine benefited from Ambrose's public preaching. Augustine was gradually being released from certain anxieties because of clarifications of the Catholic faith occurring within the public liturgy. 
If we feel that we cannot be helped by preachers around us, what about reading great spiritual classics and especially the lives of the saints? Monica can be our spiritual mother. Ambrose can be our spiritual father. Many religious, such as Dominicans, call Augustine Holy Father Augustine because of his rule that they profess to follow. Personally, I am very grateful for Augustine's paternal care for my community and me. Some find him to be our old friend, who shows our feet the way of peace. Moreover, we can be models of peace for others, even when we may have some anxiety still lurking in our heart. Do not think that you have to have your whole act together in order for you to model what God wants to give other people. <laughs> we can help others, especially through our persistent prayer and our talk about God. Our tears for our loved ones can be like faithful Monica's. Ambrose cleared away some of Augustine's anxious problems by allowing him to know what the Catholic faith taught about the image of God and how to read the Bible. Ambrose was communicating a new template to interpret reality, a new worldview on all things by giving him a God's eye view. We can do the same for others. We all need certainty, and the anxious do not have it. It is important not to give them a false certainty, a false irenicism. People, after all, could be certain about what is, in fact, not true, and people could have a false sense of peace about what needs to be overthrown. As models for others, we can distinguish because of the word of God. In this way, God can make us a Monica or an Ambrose for the young Augustans around us. Now we go to the world's extremes. After we see Monica and Ambrose in, in book six, whom do we encounter? You know, we encounter Augustine at the imperial court and the drunken beggar on the streets. Um, and then in terms of badly coping with anxiety today, the busy workaholic and the non-working alcoholic could be two examples. Many of us know at least one of these types all too well. In a recent study of 16,426 working Norwegians, those who could be called workaholic, according to the Bergen Work Addiction Scale, had significantly higher rates of psychiatric illness than those who are not addicted to work. Of the different kinds of illness studied, anxiety was most prominent. About one-third of workaholics met anxiety criteria, criteria whereas only about 12% of non-workaholics had anxiety. The connection between work addiction and anxiety could be reciprocal, as anxiety leads some to excessive work, and excessive work makes some people more anxious. With regard to the other extreme, although some alcoholics can also be workaholics, we're thinking of non-working alcoholics, especially those who are homeless. Alcohol can lead some to lose their home, and those who are already homeless may turn to alcohol or another substance in addiction to try to cope with the vast problems of their lives. Well over half a million people were estimated to be homeless in the United States in 2017. Those most adversely affected to addiction are the young. We read such statistics as 71% of missing, runaway, throwaway, or abducted children reported a substance abuse. Neither the workaholic nor the alcoholic may grasp how divine providence can steer an anxious heart away from presumption and despair into peace. Whereas successful workaholics master, control, and produce according to their own efforts by presumption, defeated alcoholics have given up their own work and the usefulness of their efforts in despair. Sometimes people alternate in their anxieties between presumption and despair. The ends touch, as the saying goes. Since neither one of these approaches is guided by truth, neither can ultimately satisfy the anxious heart in God's peace. The heart can be deadened by all sorts of things opposite to each other, but can be satisfied by only one. 
Of the two extremes mirrored in Book Six, our attention in Augustine's narration falls more to the one of worldly success. Young Augustine, the proud lying orator, who comes to see how he's like the drunken beggar and worse than him. Can we see something of ourselves in Augustine's, of Augustine at the imperial court? Do we have a way of living that has something of a lie at its core? Many people pretend, act, or downright lie, not just for a job, but also for their relationships. Now let's turn to those relationships, friendships and anxieties. Augustine, of course, features Alypius and then to a lesser extent, Nebridius in various ways. We may think of friends merely in terms of how they are related to our heart's need and how they construct relationships for the need of our hearts. What I do and what they do may align more or less in ways that form or weaken friendships. This may play out in social media's user statistics. Users may want to gain lots of friends or followers and may measure how often others like their posts. Yet increased rates of social media, rather than relieving anxiety, are accompanied by increased anxiety. Okay, so different studies have shown this, that it actually increases anxiety. We do not see social media in book six, but we do find attention given to friendship and what will satisfy Augustine and his friends. Ultimately, Augustine shows that even fine people drawn together as friends are left wanting something more than what they can give to each other. Okay. They need to accept the one who says, I no longer call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends, because I have told you everything I have heard from my father. So we also must learn to accept that friendship on the Lord's terms for our anxious heart. This is how, you know, that we accept God for his peace. By doing so, we in faith will know the Lord's presence not only in our lives, but also in the lives of those around us. Even when they do not realize his presence, we can in friendship with the Lord, be assured of his assistance. Now we go to the intimate struggles of the heart. After Augustine reviews many years of his heart, of his life through a whirlwind of past thoughts, he lets us see something of those intimate struggles. Okay, remember the three nameless females. So the mother of his son, uh, the, uh, the underage girl, and then the mistress. All right, now, uh, we know that he writes this account as a celibate bishop, still under suspicion, by others and himself regarding sexual sins. What do we see in this mirror regarding our own temptations and sins? In their November 2015 pastoral letter, Create in Me a Clean Heart, a pastoral response to pornography, the U.S. bishops conclude with this assurance. As we close, we assure all who are struggling with the sin of pornography and striving to cultivate chastity that you are not alone in your struggle. Jesus is with you, and the church offers you love and support. Trust in and be led by the Holy Spirit. The Lord's mercy and forgiveness are abundant. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. God's grace and concrete help are always available. Healing is always possible. Jesus is with you. That's the message of comfort for those struggling with unchastity, and indeed it is what Jesus wanted all to know. On the night before he died, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. He did not leave us orphaned. He promised that he would send another advocate, the Holy Spirit. And in Matthew's account of the gospel, the risen Lord, about to ascend to heaven, promises with these last words, I am with you always until the end of the age. God at the end and all along the way. Now, remember how in the brief last section of book six, Augustine considers God's judgment. He writes, as I grew more and more miserable, you were drawing nearer. Already your right hand was ready to seize me and pull me out of the filth, yet I did not know it. 
Augustine continues, The only thing that restrained me from being sucked still deeper into the whirlpool of carnal lusts was the fear of death and of your future judgment, which throughout all the swings of opinion had never been dislodged from my heart. Can we see something about ourselves in this mirror? Can we find that an anxious dissatisfaction with the things of this world may turn us from this passing world to its creator by his grace? Fear of future judgment can be a salutary remedy for many, but Augustine wants us to see something more than that. He wants us to know of God's presence now, his peace now, even if we do not feel that presence. We may feel like a restless insomniac, but Augustine wants us to know how God is drawing closer and closer to us in our restless misery. God stands ready and shouts to us as he did to Augustine at the close of Book 6. Run! I will carry you! I will lead you! And I will bring you home. Thank you.